So starting from chapter 31 to give a bit of context uh, to this, where um, we're leading into the, the sort of grand finale of Deuteronomy and this grand finale of Deuteronomy as the people who have spent 40 years waiting in the wilderness, continuously hearing about this promised land that they're going to enter into and they've just been on the fringe of it and finally they're getting uh, the, the final call, the rallying of the troops to say, hey, this is going to happen soon and they get one final reminder, one final witness and it is this song, it is this song of Moses that happens in chapter 32 that God commissions Moses to give. And this song is extremely significant for the life of Israel. It's something that God wants for them to have as a permanent witness. It's something that God wants them to have always on their lips to remember when they are in the promised land. So to set the scene, as we look at chapter 31 in the first eight verses there from 31, 1 to 8, we have this recurring theme it's all through the book of Deuteronomy where God promises to be with his people, to fight for them. God is actually going to accomplish all of the promises he has given because he will achieve them through his people. But we see that through Deuteronomy, the Lord promises to accomplish these things and to work through his people with the condition that they walk in obedience to him. And where they are disobedient to him, he withdraws his presence. So God wants them to walk in obedience to him and to fear him so that he may work through them. And we see this actually then in verses 9 to 13 of chapter 31, where Moses explains to the people that they are going to have this festival every seven years, the, the, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And in that, the key point is that they are going to read the book of the law to the whole people of Israel. And when they read the book of the law, there is a purpose to this. And we see it in verses 12 to th and 13, where the book of the law is read out to everyone, even the foreigners, whoever is there. And the purpose is, verse 12, so that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. And then verse 13, that even the children would hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. God's people will walk in obedience to the Lord and enjoy the blessings of communion with him only insofar as they fear him. The fear of God is essential and the fear of God will be evident in the community of Israel by their commitment to obey him. Whenever Israel chooses to follow other gods, it is evidence that they do not fear the God of heaven and earth, the God of Israel. They do not fear him, so they choose to follow other gods. And this idea of not fearing God and therefore not walking in obedience to him is key to understanding the song of Moses. This is the context. So you can see from verses 14 to 18, still in chapter 31, the Lord actually foreshadows the people's rebellion. You know, it's kind of ironic, like he's giving all these beautiful promises to them, but he knows you're going to rebel. You're going to go worship other foreign gods. He uses very graphic language, like you're going to whore after foreign gods. And yet the grace of God is still to commit by a covenant to this people. But we see in this section here in verses 14 to 18, the Lord says, 
This people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant. Then my anger will be kindled against them. And if we jump forward to verse 24, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in the book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant, and he said, take this book of the law, put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. And then he says, verse 27, for I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. I mean, this is quite a pep talk from Moses as he's rallying the people to enter in. He's saying, here, have this book of the law right next to you and it's going to be a witness to you because you're going to disobey it because you're a stubborn and rebellious people. Now go conquer the promised land. You know, it doesn't really set a promising picture, but this is the reality for the people of Israel. And this is the context of God asking Moses to give this song to the people. So as we lead into this song now, if you look then still in chapter 31 at verses 18 and 19, sandwiched in between these ominous themes of a stubborn and rebellious people, Moses saying, well, God is actually saying through Moses, my anger is kindled against you. And then verse 18, I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. That's the context. God's saying, this people will be evil. They will turn away. Then verse 19, therefore, give this song as a witness for me against the people. So that's the context of the song of Moses. God actually saying there are stubborn and rebellious people. Therefore, write this song that is going to act as a witness for me against the people of Israel. It's kind of like if you were to commission someone to do a job for you, you actually contract them. And especially if you have some concerns about their character, you will stipulate very clearly in the contract exactly what they are to do and then what's going to go wrong, the repercussions if they don't do that. And that contract acts as a witness so that when they don't do it, you say, well, hey, it was set up very clearly in the contract. You didn't fulfill your end of the contract. And that's why there's going to be repercussions. And this is actually what God is saying. This song is here for. It's a witness for him to the people of Israel that they were a stubborn and rebellious people. And when they are stubborn and rebellious and forsake God, this song will be a reminder that God warned them of this. So this song acts as a warning not to abandon their commitment to serving this gracious God. And it acts as a warning for us today. And we know that because at the very end of the song, in chapter 32, verse 46, after Moses recites it, Moses says to the people, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that you may be careful to do all the words of the law. So he says, heed these words that I am warning you with. This is a warning how wonderful are warnings when we can actually heed them. So let's take a look at this song in chapter 32. There are five main sections of this song in chapter 32. And we see how they reveal God's character and then what the call and response is for us in response to this song. So the first section is in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 32. And this section is the announcement of a great God and a rebellious people. So verse one, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, 
and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. This is a, a cosmic announcement. Hear me, O heavens and earth. It's a cosmic announcement for everyone to hear. It's written to the people of Israel, yet because God, the God of Israel, is the God of heaven and earth, then this announcement is to all the heavens and all the earth, as far as anything can go. And the announcement is that there is a rock. There is a solid, immovable God who is faithful and just. The rock, verse 4, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without sin, without any ounce of impurity or sin in him. And this perfect God has instructions that in verses 2 and 3 are like much needed rain in a drought stricken land. Remember the context of the wilderness of Israel. It's not like a wilderness that is some sort of rainforest or gets a lot of water. Like it's a dry and barren land. So to hear teaching that is like rain is like being in a desert with no water for days and days. Then all of a sudden there's this beautiful oasis of fresh water that you can just jump into and be absolutely nourished in. And that's what this teaching is like. So this is the announcement of an all-powerful and all-satisfying God. Then there's this other announcement. So there's an announcement of two parties. One is this all-powerful and all-satisfying God. The second is this announcement of a stubborn and rebellious people. Look at verse 5 and 6. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So in contrast to Yahweh being just and upright, Israel are crooked and twisted. It's the total opposite. Just or righteous in the Hebrew language can mean straight. And the people of Israel are twisted and crooked. They're the total opposite. In verse 6, Moses calls them a foolish and senseless people and questions why they would repay the Lord's kindness and mercy with rebellion and rejection. Why would you do that? So these are the two main players in this story, a just and faithful God and a crooked and twisted people. And then we get to this second section of the song, which is verses 7 to 18. This section is about God's grace and the people's rejection. So from verse 7, we are reminded about how the Lord was faithful so remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind. This is actually not only showing God's grace to Israel, but to everyone, to the entire world, when God actually carefully placed them. He's totally sovereign over all things that he actually divided the land. Very similar to Paul's speech in Acts 17, where he says God sets boundaries for the people. God does this because he's sovereign over every single people group in the world. And though he is sovereign over all, he chooses a tiny people to be his treasured possession. Verse 9, but the Lord, the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. 
So verse 10 goes on to explain how God electing Israel was like someone utterly helpless in a desert land, someone lost, just completely helpless in the howling waste of the wilderness. And God then surrounds that person. He swoops in, surrounds them, and he makes them the apple of his eye. That's the, the pupil, the most delicate part of your eye. And God actually says, that's, that's what you are to me. So, of course, I'm going to protect. Like, we want to protect our eyes unless we are foolish. We, we protect them. And God is saying, I'm going to make these people the apple of my eye. I will protect them. I will commit to them. So we see this gracious God who cares for this unworthy people. And then from verse 15, we see the response of the people to this gracious God. It says, Jeshurun, which is another name for, for Israel, grew fat and kicked. He forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. The people abandoned the covenant and the covenant God And they started following other gods. And this is the danger of God's provision to a stubborn people. They simply grow entitled and they forget God. And this was the warning. And actually, uh, this theme in Deuteronomy chapter 8 was the reason why I wanted to, to preach through Deuteronomy. Because it's a wonderful warning for us. Where God warns the people in Deuteronomy 8, Moses is speaking to them. And he says, we're in the wilderness now and the Lord has tested you. He has actually made you go hungry. He has withheld things from you because he wanted to test you and see what was in your heart. Now you're about to enter the promised land and what's going to happen then? What's going to happen when you have houses? What's going to happen when you have food, when you have access to all of these things? Are you going to forget the Lord your God? You know, he was preparing them before it happened to say, don't grow entitled. When you have an abundance because the Lord will bless you, don't grow entitled. So learn from the afflictions that you have now to not grow entitled. Unfortunately, this is what didn't happen for Israel. They didn't learn from that. They didn't heed this word. So they just scoffed at the rock of their salvation. They spat in his face and they chose to follow other gods. And so what is God's response to this? Well, this is the, the third section of the song in verses 19 to 27. The Lord's response to their rebellion is then to reject them. He rejects them. He says, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. I mean, that is a scolding rebuke upon the people. There is no faithfulness in them. So God doesn't sit back like some sort of weak stepfather figure that feels like he's crossing a line if he disciplines so he just sort of stays back and hopes that everyone gets along in some very passive way as much as the world likes to think of God now as someone who passively stays out and who has a weak smile on his face that's not the God of the Bible that's not the God who reigns now he takes the most serious form of discipline upon his people because of the most serious form of rebellion. So he hides his face from them. That is to say, he withdraws from them. He rejects them. He withdraws his blessing upon them, takes away his hand of provision, which like in verse 22, that means that his anger is kindled against them and it burns to the depths of Sheol. He says, I will heap my disasters upon them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by plague, poisoned with pestilence. And the only thing 
that stops God from completely destroying them, we see in verses 26 and 27, and that is his own reputation. That's why God withholds his almost curse from them. That's why he doesn't destroy them completely, not because of anything good within them, but because of his own reputation. Like he says in Ezekiel 36, not for your sake, it's for my sake. You've blasphemed my name, so for the sake of my name and my holiness, I will avert my wrath. God cares most about his glory, and he says here that he does not follow through with this destruction because otherwise the other nations will look on and they will think, oh, we did it. We conquered Israel. There was no God after all, and God will not allow that. He has a passion for his glory and his reputation. And just as like a side point of application for us, this is so wonderfully comforting to come to the point where you realize that you bring nothing to the table and all of your requests and petitions and all of your hopes before God are purely based on his name and his perfect reputation and the fact that you, in weakness, in trusting in Christ, you bear that name. So like Daniel, you pray, not for our sake, don't, don't uh, save Jerusalem for our sake, but this city bears your name, we bear your name, so therefore come through. It's a wonderful thing. I remember giving this example a while ago. I remember being in primary school and uh, I was only a very small, like year two or year three kid. And there was a year six kid and because primary school kids are very juvenile and silly at the best of times, he was also called Tom. And so I had like his favor simply because I had his name. And I distinctly remember playing soccer and our ball went off to the year sixes and there was some kid there who just because he was a bully, he was going to kick our ball over the fence. And then the big Tom, who was like a Goliath guy, saw me and said, oh, no, don't kick it away. That kid's name is Tom. And so we got the ball back. And at that moment, I was just so thankful to be called Tom. But at no point in my mind did I think, oh, I'm so special. I've done that. No, I was just thinking, oh, thank goodness. Goliath Tom has my name. So like Goliath Tom, you keep being great. You keep bringing glory to yourself and I'll just reap the benefits of bearing your name, just covering myself in you. I'm just a weak little puny year two. And that's like the reality for us. God, glorify your name, be glorified, not just reap the benefits of having your name and of enjoying your presence. So everything I ask, do it for your name's sake. That's wonderfully liberating for us we can have absolute confidence that god will always be for us because if we bear his name he would never do anything that would call his name into question we can have confidence in that the fourth section of our song is now the revelation of god's supreme power over all things this is verses 28 to 42 god's supreme power over all things here Yahweh is speaking of other nations who are void of counsel and have no understanding. This is in the first part in 28 uh, to 33, where he's speaking of actually other nations that are void of counsel. They don't have any understanding within them because if they had understanding, then they would realize that whenever Israel is exiled or conquered, it's not because they are special. It's because the Lord has withdrew his hand. It's because the Lord wants it. He's exiling them, but they avoid an understanding. So they, they might think that they've actually done it. So we see here God's 
power and his absolute sovereignty over everything because even the exile and punishment of his people are his doing. It's not because the other nations overpowered them. It's because God allowed the other nations to do his work for them, for him. The enemy, both in terms of anyone who opposes God and Satan himself, are merely on a leash that God eternally holds and at any moment can reel in with utter ease. And from verse 35, we see this declaration of God's supreme power in his vengeance over his enemies. He says, Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. And tied to this vengeance and punishment that the Lord brings over the nations who have blasphemed his name is God's vindication and mercy for his people. And this is where we see the power of God. In verse 36, he says, The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. God's supreme power is seen both in terms of his complete ability to judge wicked people and the fact that he has compassion on wicked people. That's where his power is seen. See, most people would think that supreme power is just purely in a God who can then destroy wickedness. And that is right. We would see power in that. Having compassion and forgiving people in our society doesn't exactly seem like a powerful thing to do. But God shows his power in simultaneously punishing sin, the sin of the nations, and having mercy on a sinful people. Any powerful warlord can bring destruction and chaos with a great ego, and any Mother Teresa figure can constantly be merciful. But who is able to have the perfect balance of absolute punishment against evil and absolute mercy? against evil who is able to have that perfect measure of vengeful justice and a perfect measure of compassion upon the same people who deserve vengeful justice and where do we see that best we of course see that in the cross of christ where god punishes the sin of wicked people where god punishes our sin and so he maintains his justice because he would be seen as unjust if all of these people were disobeying him and he let them go on just like a judge would seem unjust if he let a murderer or a serial killer go free that would be unjust so god maintains his justice in punishing sin yet he maintains his overwhelming compassion by punishing that sin in his son instead of us having his wrath poured out upon him so that we would receive mercy. So he maintains the one who is just and the one who justifies the ungodly. And the final response in verse 43, of there's another beautiful declaration. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. This is a cosmic response to a cosmic announcement. The heavens are to rejoice. It's a beautiful reality. It reminds me of Isaiah 35. We, I, I, I think Isaiah 35, we get this picture 
um, actually Isaiah 55, sorry, verse 12 at the end, where we have this beautiful picture of restoration and the description is of the trees clapping their hands. Just imagine like trees with branches clapping their hands. It seems a bit comical, but it's actually God's way of saying, even these trees will rejoice when I bring restoration. The mountains will rejoice. The heavens will rejoice. And so God in this announcement says, the heavens will rejoice. But as well as that, all of the gods will bow down to him, even though there are no other gods. And God is very clear about this in verse 39 to say, there, there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. This is God saying, I'm the only one who holds the power of life and death. There are no other gods. Yet any God-like figure will still bow before me. Everyone will bow before God. We do it now, bowing before Jesus and therefore rejoicing when he returns or we bow in absolute terror when he returns in his wrath. So there is a weightiness to this. There is a weightiness to this song. I wonder if you can feel that. Remember the main purpose of this song is a warning to strike a fear within people that would then lead to obedience, that would then lead to the enjoyment of communion with God. So as we think about how we should respond to this song, we have to feel the same weight of this as though we are the ones who are prone to wander, as though we are the stubborn and rebellious people. We have to feel that same weight that would then cause a healthy fear within us that then drives us to the throne of grace. This song is here to strike a healthy fear in our hearts. It is here to humble us. And just as I finish, this is important for our culture because our culture conditions us to have a disposition that is the total opposite of humility and fear of the Lord. Our culture is one of self-esteem and entitlement. We need to esteem ourselves. If you have a problem with your confidence, you just need to think more of yourself. You just need to think how great of a person you are and how you can achieve anything if you just put your mind to it. And that's the water we swim in. So rather than recognizing our own inadequacies and sinfulness, we are told to esteem ourselves. And rather than a posture of undeserving gratitude, we feel entitled to only good all the time. If something bad happens to us, it seems outrageous. And that's where this outrage culture comes from. So we need to feel the weight that comes when we realize that we have nothing in and of ourselves to esteem. We forsook the God who made us. We scoffed at the rock of his salvation. We need to be humbled before this holy God who is front and center to the song of Moses. So let me finish with how Charles Simeon shows us this kind of fearful humility and how that leads to overwhelming gratitude. Charles Simeon was a pastor in the 18th and 19th century, and he was someone who grasped the absolute necessity of humility in the hearts of those following Jesus. Let me read out a quote from Charles Simeon. He said, I have labored incessantly to cultivate the deepest humiliation before God. There are about two objects that I have ever desired for those 40 years to behold. One, 
my own vileness to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I have always thought that they should be viewed together. My own vileness and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says, by this I seek to be not only humble and thankful, but humbled in thankfulness before my God and Savior continually. So Simeon actually believed that he should always remember his own vileness, that he should always remember how wretched he is. And his reasoning for that is, he says, repentance is in every view so desirable, necessary and suited to honor God because the tender heart, the broken and contrite spirit are to me far above all the joys I could ever hope for in this veil of tears. I long to be in my proper place, my hand on my mouth and my mouth in the dust. I feel this to be safe ground. Here I cannot err. I am sure whatever God may despise, he will not despise the broken and contrite heart. Do you get what Simeon is saying? He remembers his vileness. He remembers how wretched he is because true realization of our sinfulness leads to brokenness and contrition and brokenness and contrition, not uh, self-flagellation, not like an extreme amount where you're actually doing it to sort of cover something up, but true brokenness that comes from recognizing your sin, that comes from being confronted by a holy God, leads to the place where God swoops in and comforts the downcast. That's why Simeon says, here is my proper place, because in brokenness and contrition, God will never despise a broken and contrite heart. No, 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 he will pour out his mercy. He will come in and sweep you up and say, come into my throne of grace. Receive mercy in your time of need. The valley of humiliation always leads to the mountain peak of gratitude. And the problem with our culture is that we try to get to the mountain peak of gratitude and of esteem by flying over the valley of humiliation. And there's one way to get there through the valley of humiliation that leads to the mountain peak of gratitude. The follower of Jesus follows the path of guilt, grace, and gratitude. And if you try to skip the guilt, you won't get to the grace and you won't get to the gratitude. We recognize our guilt, we receive God's grace, and we are grateful. And that's our path. This is the purpose of the Song of Moses. To remind the people of their sin and rebellion before a just and perfect God so that they would fear Him and their fear would drive them to a place of gratitude before this God who vindicates His people and has compassion on His children. Let me finish with one last quote from Simeon. I think that's the third time I've said I've finished, with, which is the preacher's allowance to actually say that. But this is genuinely the, the, the finish here with this quote. By constantly meditating on the goodness of God and on our great deliverance from that punishment which our sins have deserved, we are brought to feel our vileness and utter unworthiness. And while we continue in this spirit of self-degradation, interesting he uses that word. That's something that our culture would want to avoid. He's saying, no, no, enter into self-degradation. Everything else in this place, everything else will go on easily. 
we shall find ourselves advancing in our course. We shall feel the presence of God. We shall experience His love. We shall live in the enjoyment of His favor and in the hope of His glory. He says, you often feel like your prayers scarcely reach the ceiling, but oh, get into this humble spirit by considering how good the Lord is and how evil you are. And then prayer will mount on wings of faith to heaven. The groan of a broken heart will soon go through the ceiling up to heaven into the very bosom of God. The valley of humiliation leads to the mountain peak of gratitude. A broken and contrite spirit God will never despise He wants humility because he exalts the humble. If we try and skip it, he humbles those who try and exalt themselves. And it's not a good humbling. This is what the song of Moses is here for, to remember that we are the same people who are prone to wander. So let us fear the Lord. Let us not think too highly of ourselves. Let us think more highly of others than ourselves. Let us have humility and trust that in that proper place, the Lord will lift us up. The Lord will give us grace and mercy in our time of need.